If you will join me in Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, we will be looking this morning at verses 9 through 14 as we continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. The title of our sermon today is Humbly Exalted, and this is part two. We did part one several months ago, and our key words for our worshipers in training are righteous, Pharisee, and tax collector. Now, most of you are probably familiar with the writer by the name of Leo Tolstoy. In school, you may have read War and Peace, or at least said you read War and Peace, It was the longest book most people had to read at a young age. It's no Dr. Seuss, to be sure. Now, Tolstoy is an interesting man. Many people consider him to be the greatest Western novelist of all time. But many people don't know what Tolstoy thought about himself. He had a very interesting morality. Tolstoy was not a Christian, and so obviously his moral barometer was himself. He wrote that God was, quote, the desire for universal welfare. And in the end, he saw himself to be a sort of God. He once wrote in his diary, quote, help, Father, come and dwell within me. You already dwell within me. You are already me. Now, there's a fascinating historical work by a man named Paul Johnson. It's called Intellectuals. And here's what he said of of Tolstoy. There were times when Tolstoy seemed to think of himself as God's brother, indeed, his elder brother. Tolstoy wrote in another journal entry, read a work on the literary characterization of genius today, and this awoke in me the conviction that I am a remarkable man both as regards capacity and eagerness to work. I have not yet met a single man who was morally as good as I. I do not remember an instance in my life when I was not attracted to what is good and was not ready to sacrifice anything to it. He said that he felt in his own soul immeasurable grandeur. Tolstoy saw himself as above the rest of humanity, and he often compared himself to Moses, to Isaiah, to Confucius, the early Greeks, Buddha, and even Jesus. And some people, hopefully all of us, recoil at that kind of arrogance as we hear that. But you see, the difference between Tolstoy and the average man is really very minor. Tolstoy is willing to admit what every man inherently thinks about himself already. How many times have you said or heard, I'm a good person? It's the same exact thing that Tolstoy said. The only difference is that he's a better writer and able to say it in a way that sounds very dramatic. But before a person becomes a true Christian, they can meet no one more righteous than themselves. Tolstoy, like all of us, was confident in his own righteousness and he looked down on everybody else. Now as we press on in our series through the Gospel of Luke this morning, we come to a text in which Jesus says, in a very familiar parable now, that it isn't always something that's received with the kind of discomfort that it should be received. All of us have the tendency to say, I'm glad I'm not like that man over there. 
And one of the huge ironies I hope we recognize here is that Jesus tells this parable in such a way that our initial gut reaction is to say, I am glad I am not like the man we're reading about. And you'll see what I mean in just a moment. It's important for us to check our hearts along the way because even as Christians, we often tend to have an inflated view of our own righteousness, which we assume ourselves to be far greater than we really are. And we're taking a look at this parable which introduces us to a problem and then Jesus provides for us two alternative solutions. In the parable, Jesus introduces us to a universal problem. The problem of righteousness. And then he gives us two different men. One is a Pharisee and one is a tax collector. Now, if you think of this in context, remember the preceding parable we looked at last week, the parable of the persistent widow. It had to do with prayer. And this too, we see in many ways, is on this theme of prayer. So last week we learned that persistence in prayer shows what we think about God that we're confident that he is gracious, that he is caring, that he hears our prayers and he answers them. But in this parable this morning, we learn that our prayers unwittingly reveal what we think about ourselves. So my challenge to us this morning is because this is so familiar and so often we just kind of breeze through familiar passages, let's think about things this way. Which of these men are we most like? Notice, I didn't say who should we be like or who do we want to be like, but who are we most like? Perhaps there's a lot more Tolstoy in all of us than we would like to think or hope. Let's read the entire parable together. We'll consider the problem, and then we'll look at the Pharisee's way of dealing with the problem and the tax collector's way of dealing with the problem. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So first, let's think about the problem. We learn the problem in Jesus' parable right out of the gate here in verse 9. There are some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You see, the problem is righteousness. And we all have the problem. I want to explain what I mean by that because depending on your understanding of righteousness, it might be a good thing. However, it might be a bad thing. So often in our culture, the idea of righteousness is a bad thing. And when we hear people talk about something being righteous, they're often saying, 
someone is condescending or judgmental. Our culture would say that someone is righteous if they have a sort of holier-than-thou attitude, a greater-than-you sort of presence. But that's not what the Bible means. That's not what the Bible teaches about righteousness. In the Old and New Testaments, the word righteous is relating to people being approved, to us being accepted. Now that is something people like us can relate to, isn't it? I mean, what's the big idea behind the vast majority of advertisements we see? And if we're really honest about the decisions that we make, it's about being approved. It's about being accepted. If I wear these clothes, if I drive this car, if, you, if I put on this makeup, if I drink this drink, if I talk on this phone or eat this candy or whatever, if I do these things the right way, I will be accepted. I will be approved. It's particularly prevalent probably when we're younger. I have to wear the right brands. I have to have the right gadgets. I have to be in the right group of friends. A few days ago, Felicia and I were looking at pictures of famous people who have had numerous plastic surgeries uh, beyond what they should have, and uh, they've completely messed up their entire face. They look like those political cartoons you see in the newspaper, their lips blown up like balloons, uh, their eyes constantly up like they're surprised. What is that all about? Why do we go to that extent It's the idea that we have to look a certain way. So you see, we're all hungry for approval, right? Nobody likes to be counted out. And if you were like me in school, there's a good likelihood that you were the last person picked for basketball at recess. I think it's because they didn't realize they had a killer jump shot from downtown, but nevertheless. Nobody wants to be that guy, right? We want to be accepted. We want to be approved. Think about how kids talk about their future. What do you want to be when you grow up? You probably don't hear a lot of, I want to be a sanitation worker. I want to manage a fast food restaurant. But you know what? If every kid who said they wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer really became a doctor or a lawyer, we wouldn't have anyone doing the very important work in other domains of society. Really important parts of our livelihood and our ability to function each day is run by those who have humbled themselves to take on the things that the rest of the culture says is not all that important. But it is important. But what's the deal with that? We've convinced ourselves that some vocations are more acceptable and worthy than others. So we communicate that to our children. And those are the things worth pursuing in life if we want to fit in, if we want to be accepted. So you're seeing this runs a lot deeper than we think it does most of the time. At the very end of the great Anglo-Saxon work, Beowulf, when the, the great king died, they inscribe on his tomb, of all men, he was most hungry for glory. You see, in their culture, that was a compliment. In Anglo-Saxon culture, that meant glory and battle. And if you were successful in battle, then you were a mighty man. 
Now, of course, in the ancient Jewish culture, the idea of getting glory on the battlefield was different for us. It's probably repugnant. But, but wait a minute. Are we not? Though we, we can't relate to the cultural form of this, but we are talking about the very same thing, right? What are they hungry for and what are we hungry for? Glory. We're probably accustomed to hearing and maybe even saying things like this. I don't care what other people think about me. Really? I'm going to turn that on its head because, one, I don't think it's true for most people. And, two, that's not really a biblical idea. It's not right. If you say, I don't need anybody else's approval, it doesn't matter what other people say. All that matters is what I think. If you do that, you harden yourself. Your intentions are evil. And the only people who do not care about anyone else's opinion are evil, hardened people. They're certainly not people who are concerned with loving their neighbors. So here's where we are. We're hungry for approval. We want to get glory. In our culture, it's sort of self-esteemish and psychologized. In other cultures, it has to do with battle glory. In some cultures, it has to do with moral rectitude. But we're desperately hungry as people. We're all starved for this. Someone from outside of us has to say, you're okay. You're all right. You're accepted. No matter how much of that we receive, and it it never seems to be enough. So here's the question for us. Where would this universal problem come from? If it's universal, if it's in all of the centuries throughout time, if it's in all cultures, it had to start in the beginning, and it did. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 tells us that in the beginning, when we were absolutely sinless before God, we were absolutely certain of God's approval. Adam and Eve lived naked, and unashamed. What does that mean? It meant they didn't need to put a good face on things. They didn't need to control what other people thought of them by externals. They didn't need to hide who they really were. They were absolutely certain of God's approval and they weren't needing anyone else's. They lived free. They they lived large. But very soon after, the certainty of God's approval was lost. It was lost in the fall. When our first parents decided on our behalf that they would be their own masters, we experienced alienation. We began to experience this hunger for glory. We had an approval hunger, a self-esteem hunger, an assurance hunger, and it seems to never be satisfied. That's the problem of righteousness. Righteousness means to be approved, to be accepted, to pass scrutiny. And it's a problem all of us share. Everybody's dealing with it. So here's what Jesus does with this parable. He's telling us, I'm going to show you how righteousness is dealt with. The wrong way that doesn't work and the right way that does. And he shows us this uh, through two different men. The wrong way to work through this is, surprise, surprise, through the Pharisee. The right way, we'll see, is the way of the tax collector. Look again at verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other 
a tax collector. So the context here is the prayers of these men and what they represent. We have a Pharisee, we have a tax collector, both in the temple to pray. Obviously, very different situations in life. So first, let's look at the wrong way to deal with the problem of righteousness. How does the Pharisee deal with what we sing in one of our songs here? The glory-seeking hunger that exists within his heart. It exists in all of our hearts. Verses 11 and 12 again. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, the first thing for us to notice here is what the man is looking at in identifying sin. You notice these things that he listed, what they are? What do they all have in common? All of them are external. His primary concern is behavior and the violation or keeping of external rules, but there's no focus whatsoever on his character. There's no focus whatsoever on his heart. I do not rob, I do not commit adultery, I do not cheat, I give my money to the church and to the poor, 10% of everything. I fast, which means I pray twice a week in a special way. I go to worship, I do religious observances. Now, we can easily twist this and say, well, those things that he's saying, then that those don't matter. Well, they do matter. They matter a lot. They're significant. They're very important in the life of a Christian. But what we need to take note of is what the man is not saying. I thank you, God, that I'm growing in patience, kindness, and gentleness. Thank you for giving me a greater love for others, for filling me with joy and peace, even in the midst of difficult circumstances in life. These aren't the things he's talking about. He's absolutely focused externally. His understanding of sin and of virtue completely oriented on external behavior, keeping or breaking rules. Are those things that he mentioned, are those important elements? Yes, they're good things. But here's the kicker. Are they grounds for our salvation? Are they the keys to winning God's favor that we might be saved? No way. Now, something else to notice here, it's a, it's a little bit nuanced. And this is important in a biblical passage. So notice what Luke writes in verse 11. He says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed. Now that little statement, standing by himself, is translated a bit differently in various English translations. It's a, it's a bit ambiguous deliberately, but it's conveying a picture that the Pharisee stood and prayed by himself. And the idea is that he stood away from everyone else. He removed himself from the rest of the crowd while he was praying. No doubt he probably got a little bit closer to the altar in the center of the temple. He stood up, he got away from everyone else, and you can see that almost certainly physically he was acting out the very same thing that he was saying. Verbally, he was saying, and physically he was working out, I am not like them. So here's what's going on. If we conceive of sin almost completely as individual 
external actions, then that means something out there is what sin is. It's not in here. It's not in me. It's something out there. And I can almost completely avoid sin if I stay away from people who do it. If sin is basically certain behaviors, then I can avoid sin by staying away from other people who are involved in those things and I'll be fine. It's like thinking about sin as a a disease. If I get too close, I'm going to catch it. I need to stay away. And what we see here in the Pharisee is that his externalism, being only concerned about external sin, it leads to absolute separatism. I stay away from people who don't share my values. I stay away from places or processes. I don't read certain books. I don't do these things. I don't go places where people are going to be who are in any kind of sin because I have this external idea about sin. I have a separatist view of life. We just stay away. But when we get in that mindset, we start to see all sort of silly things. We see it in evangelicalism all the time. Everything all of a sudden has to become Christianized, right? You get Christian coffee shops and and Christian amusement parks and Christian coffee mugs. Why do we do that? Because it's the idea that we need to stand so completely apart from everything else as to not create the perception that we might be like those people out there. Now, does the Bible call Christians to live holy and separate lives? Yes, of course. But does that mean we take any external issue and make that what we stand away from? In other words, do we need to have a separatist approach in our interactions with the world? No. God's purpose is that we live lives that are not conformed to the patterns of the world. That we don't have the mindset, the worldview of what's going on in the world. Not that we don't interact with the world. There's a huge difference. It's, it's hard to be ambassadors of Christ if we create Christian enclaves and have nothing to do with the world around us. Now notice what the Pharisee leads to here. He leads to a mentality that says, I am so much better. Verse 9 says he treats others with contempt. And verses 11 and 12 say his prayer was, I'm not like these other people. Why? Because I'm better than them. Why? Because I don't rob. Well, that's in the Bible, right? Don't steal. Well, I don't cheat. I don't commit adultery. Well, that's in the Bible. I tithe. I give 10% of my income. That's in the Bible. But watch this. He says, and I fast twice a week. Is that in the Bible? God never commanded us to fast twice a week. There's nothing in God's law requiring such a thing, even for the Pharisees. But what's he doing? He's adding on his righteous deeds so that he can continue to compare himself to others. I don't rob, but they do. That makes me better. I don't commit adultery, but they do, and that makes me better. I fast twice a week, but they don't, and that makes me better. So I want us to see something here. The Pharisee is mixing God's law with his own personal or cultural thing that he does, something that's neutral, 
So here we're talking about his fasting. What does he do? This is something he wanted to do. It's something he chose to do. And what he has done is taken his personal preference and he's raising it up and he's sneaking it into the divine will of God. So he doesn't say, I fast because I want to and that makes me different than you. He says, I do this because it makes me better than you. He's taken a neutral, personal thing and elevated it and given it moral significance and he uses it in a way that makes him feel better than other people. Listen, if, if we don't live with, if we're not filled with a sense of approval in our hearts, if we're not entirely sure of who we are, if we don't feel so incredibly valued and loved and sense approval, we're going to do the very same thing as the Pharisee. It's what all of you who are not Christians do when you say, I'm a good person. According to what? According to whom? You're comparing yourself to others so that you can, you can give yourself approval. You can give yourself the appearance to appease your conscience. I'm not like that guy, so I'm a good person. But God's standard isn't good. His standard is perfect. But in suppressing God's perfect requirement and setting yourself up to be the one who determines what is good, you take things that are not God's will. They're personal preferences. They're neutral things. But you endow them with moral significance and you use them in your hunger for approval, your hunger for glory, your hunger for this reassurance that you're going to find something to convince yourself that you're okay. Because remember, the problem is righteousness. We need to be found righteous in God's sight, but none of us are. That's the problem. So we see the Pharisee's attempt is to achieve this on his own, through his works, through his external deeds. And if you're a moral non-Christian, you're a Pharisee. You set your standard and you compare everyone else to it. And since it's your own creation, you are actually setting yourself up to be a god so that you can judge everyone else's actions against your standard and declare yourself to be good and acceptable and approved. When you die, will you go to heaven? Well, how many times have we heard, yes, I will, because I'm a good person. According to what? You see, this is the outside-in approach. We say, I don't like myself, which is where we all start. I don't feel approved. I need a sense of assurance. So I'm going to live externally first in such a way that on the inside, eventually, I feel good about myself. I'm going to be better than other people. I'm going to be very good. I'm going to be very moral. I'm going to do that on my own. But guess what? It doesn't work. Look at this guy. Look at this Pharisee. He's going around saying, I'm great, Lord. I am great. Don't you see it? 
But listen, if you're one of these people who claims to be a good and accepted person because of what you do or some standard you uphold, here's the deal. When you go around saying, I'm great, it's because you know that you're not. When you go around saying, I'm righteous and I'm good, it's because you know that you're not. I'm hardworking, I'm, I'm good, I make sacrifices, I try really hard. If that's your attitude toward life, you're always feeling sorry for yourself and trying to get others on the bandwagon to do the same with you so that you can get some approval. What's going on here? It's an outside-in approach. Why do you look down your nose at people who are different than you? Why do you tend to separate from people sometimes who don't have your politics or who don't have your behavior or your morality? Because the outside-in approach says we start with what's out here. I'm going to live a life in a certain way and that'll make me feel better about myself. And look, it's not just religious. It's, it's just something having to do with, with God. It's, it's, it's cultural Like I mentioned earlier, if I dress and look a certain way, if I get a certain response, I'm approved. If I live a good life, then I can know God approves of me. If I live a good life, then what? Then God owes me? Does God owe you? That's the wrong way to deal with the problem of righteousness. Because if it really worked... If you're really sure, if you really have the approval on the inside through your working on the outside, you wouldn't be so insecure. You wouldn't be going around reminding everyone how good you are. You wouldn't have to be putting yourself up to be so great, and you wouldn't be so upset when criticism came. It doesn't work. Now remember this about the Pharisee. By all indications, he was a quote-unquote good man. When he says, I give 10% away, that means he's generous to the poor. When he says, I don't commit adultery, that means he's a good husband. Here's a good man, but look at the prayer. Jesus does this on purpose. Whenever you start a prayer like this, I thank you, Lord, that... Or whenever you write a thank you letter to someone, what are you thanking them for? Look at the Pharisees does. I thank you, God about all these things that I'm doing on my own. That's the last reference to God you'll find in his prayer. It's all about him. I thank you, God, that I'm so wonderful. Jesus is showing this man's self-worship. And underneath the veneer of God-centeredness is utter self-centeredness. Underneath all of this God-talk and activity is an adoration of his own ego. All right, let's look at the tax collector, the final part, the right way to deal with the problem of righteousness. Verses 13 and 14, the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So now Jesus is showing us something here that is at the heart of the gospel. 
What was the major issue in Genesis 3 and the, the cause of the fall of all mankind? Our first parents were seeking to be their own master. They wanted to be their own God, their own Lord, their own Savior. And there's two ways this happens with us. One is by breaking all of God's laws. Another is by keeping all of God's law. But in such a way that we're so focused on the external that we feel good about ourselves on the outside and say, now, God, you owe me. And we begin to look down our nose at others. In both situations, though, the problem is exactly the same. To break all of God's law or to supposedly keep all of God's law as a way of earning your salvation means that you're not depending upon the grace of God. Now listen, Jesus is not saying it's a good thing to be like the tax collector in his life and his immoral practices. He's saying both good people and bad people in their natural state are being good and bad for the very same reason. To get God off of their back, to be in control of their own lives, to be their own savior, to be their own Lord. What's the difference between the two? Well, the only difference is that people like the Pharisee who live externally don't know what they're doing because they think they're all right with God when those who reject God are doing it outright. They're doing it knowingly. Non-Christians who are professing non-Christians who say very clearly they're not Christians know they're avoiding God. They know they're trying to be their own master. But religious people like the Pharisee would never believe it. They don't believe it. And as a result, they're in far worse shape. It's the reason why over and over again, Jesus shows the bad boy and the good boy. The bad boy being saved and the good boy being lost. Remember the parable of the two sons? Why does he do this? Because the outside-in approach doesn't work. And it's very deadly. It's deceptive. But look at the tax collector. What's going on in his heart in Jesus' parable? He's saying essentially this. All I know is that I'm lost. And where everybody else is doesn't matter to me right now. In other words, he's thinking of sin in the way that you and I ought to think of sin. If you want to fix a problem of righteousness, don't look at everything you've done wrong. I'm not saying robbery is okay or adultery is okay, but you can't start there. The man knew how to repent of adultery and robbery when they happened. This man was repenting of his sin, but he was repenting of real sin. And here's what that looks like. If you want to understand the gospel and be changed by it, it says, Lord, there have been periods in my life which have been very, very bad. I've lived badly. I've done things I shouldn't have done. There are periods in my life which I've been pretty good. I've kept my nose clean and I've seemingly done things right. But I now see the reason I did good things was pretty much the same reason why I did the bad things. I've always wanted to be my own savior. I've always wanted to put you in my debt instead of me living in your debt. I've always wanted to look down on other people Because I've always been doing external things. Always. Sometimes religiously. Sometimes non-religiously. But underneath is not only my sins, but also my good deeds. 
I repent of the motivation that has been driving me to this kind of life. I don't want to be dependent on your grace, but today I throw myself on your mercy. That's true repentance. Isn't that what we see in the tax collector? He says, God, be merciful to me. Literally, he says, the sinner. This man is not saying, God, let me off. God, lower your standard. God, just overlook my sins. That doesn't help with the problem. What he's saying is, Lord, I need atonement for my sins. Well, where does that come from? Well, here's how it comes. Jesus Christ became sin on our behalf. He died on a cross that we might live. He took upon himself sin and its penalty, and we received, here it is, righteousness. We receive righteousness. You see, the problem of righteousness is only fixed in Jesus alone. It's only in Jesus that we find the only approval that matters and the only approval that satisfies. And it's not because of us. As Christians, we are 100% approved by the Father, but because of the perfect work of Jesus on our behalf. You see, once Jesus died for you, the penalty for your sin was paid in spite of all the things that you've done in your life. Now you're accepted in Christ. You're utterly approved in Jesus. So you see, you don't have to wait till the very end of your life to say, did I live a good enough life? Jesus lived a perfect life for you. Jesus is the propitiation. He is the atonement. He is the thing the tax collector was looking for. And it changed everything. It's inside out. It's not external. But the gospel is, you can be utterly sure of God's approval. You can be utterly sure of God's love. Utterly sure that He has seen you at your very worst, at the very bottom of all of your sin. But in Christ, He loves you anyway. And when we get that, when we understand that God loves us in spite of ourselves because of Jesus, we're not going to be searching for approval in the world anymore. We will be content in God's approval and we will rest and be satisfied in His kindness, in His goodness, and in His love. You'll stop comparing yourself to everyone else. You'll stop being judgmental and you'll stop basing everything on external actions. When you seek to live life from the outside in, When you're doing something to get God's approval, you're grumpy, you're overbearing, you're unattractive, you're cold, and you're oftentimes very harsh. But when you're living inside out, when you find your identity and your approval in Christ and not your works, you live a life that's not only pleasing to God, but others get a sense of that. You're much more kind. You're, you're so much more careful in your relationships. You're much more laid back and not frazzled about everything. In other words, you do what you don't have to do on the external because you do it now out of a thankful, willing, joyful heart, knowing that you're accepted in Christ. And so if I screw it all up, Christ still loves me. Christ still died for me. I don't have to do all of this to be justified. 
It's being exalted in Christ because of a humility that drives me to thankful obedience because of what Christ has done. And when we humble ourselves and find our identity in Christ, he tells us it is then that we will be exalted. Last thing, and then we're done. Wouldn't it be interesting if some of us went home saying, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like the Pharisee. I thank you, Lord, that I am not like the legalist. Those people who don't understand that you're saved by grace alone. I thank you, Lord, that I am not like those outside-in people. I'm an inside-out person. You know what? There's always outside-in stuff hiding in our inside-out lives. Always. Do you know where it is? Have you found it? Can you see it? God's word for all of us today is that there is a world of grace ready for us. And he's calling us to dive in. If you're in Jesus Christ, you're accepted and you're approved in God. Stop running. Stop seeking approval in everything and everyone else. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that our approval and our acceptance is not based upon our works, but it is firmly and sufficiently fixed and found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. But if everyone in here is honest this morning, we recognize that we fall far, far short of what you require, of the perfection that you call all of mankind to. And in doing so, showing us our absolute need for a righteousness that we cannot provide, a righteousness that is outside of ourselves, a right standing that comes from Christ alone. And so I pray, Father, that we be reminded this morning and that it be evident in our lives, it be evident in our prayers, that our hope is not in what we do, but in what Christ has done. That our approval is not found in the clothes we wear, the money we make, or the actions that we perform, even really good things. But our approval is found in that Jesus has taken our sin upon himself and given to us a righteousness that we could not provide. Lord, would we all find our identity in Christ alone? For those who are here this morning, Lord, who think of themselves to be good people, who continually reject you as your enemies, I pray, Lord, that you would humble them and bring them to a place of true repentance and faith in Christ alone. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for pointing out to us the hypocrisies of our own hearts. May we rest fully and finally in what you have accomplished for us in our greatest of friends, Jesus Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.